Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. If you've ever been to a baby shower, you know that at some point, the conversation veers towards birth stories, where people swap stories about giant babies, stalled labors, emergency C-sections, prolapsed vaginas, and yes, sometimes even fast and easy deliveries. Every once in a while, that comes out. Those stories serve several purposes. They prepare new parents for the numerous possibilities of childbirth and are a way for birthing people to bond, for instance. We often think about childbirth as a largely individual experience. After all, every birth is different and experienced by one birthing person. It's also often private, at least in modern practice, involving some of the most intimate processes of the body. At the same time, we also tend to think that birth has just always been the same because it's just a straightforward biological process. You often hear this come up in those baby shower conversations. Childbirth is a natural process. Your body knows what it's doing. Women have been doing this since the dawn of time. And because of all of this, it's hard for us to think of something so individualized, so private, and so biologically true um, as historically and politically significant. We've touched on this idea many times, but one of the most lasting mottos of second wave feminism is the personal is political, which argues that even private, individual, or intimate processes and experiences are loaded with political significance. And as scholars have shown in decades of research since the women's movement, the personal is also loaded with cultural and historical significance. I'm going to interrupt you. That's why the Nursing Clio tagline is, the personal is historical. Yeah, I got that. (laughs) I figured that. I was not telling you, I was telling the (laughs) listeners. You think I'm an idiot. Okay. Um, (laughs) Our bodies are and have been historically the subjects of political debate. I mean, if you're not sure what we're talking about, go and listen to literally any of our episodes about sex or birth control or abortion. 
And there are several. Oh, that's <laughs> half. That's our bread and butter, right? Right. Um, second wave feminists recognize not only that the personalist political referred to the political fight for reproductive justice, but also to the need to fight for better women's health care. As part of the women's health movement that we discussed in our episode on the myth of the midwife witch, feminists focused on pregnancy and childbirth as particularly powerful experiences that need to be reclaimed from the patriarchal control of male doctors. We also mentioned in that episode how at the same time that the women's health movement was taking place, historians began writing women's history, focusing on things traditionally associated with women that were previously considered historically unimportant, such as domestic life, motherhood, reproduction, care work, etc. One of those histories was Judith Walzer Levitt's classic 1986 book, Brought to Bed, which is, as far as I know, the first book-length social history of childbirth in America. There are some earlier articles and other things. This is like the first major work, the one that kind of has lasting significance. Born out of the burgeoning scholarship of women's history, Brought to Bed made the argument that birth was a social experience that changed over time, shaped by society and culture, as well as by birthing women themselves. Far from an immutable fact of biology experienced privately, this new work revealed that childbirth was an experience loaded with gendered meanings influenced and shaped by women themselves. So today, by popular demand, we are talking about the history of childbirth in America. I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Hey, you. Yes, you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And to our amazing Patreon supporters, thank you for choosing us to patronize. We are nothing without you. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Before we start, I think it's important to be clear about the scope of this episode. The history of childbirth is immense. We simply cannot give you a comprehensive history of childbirth in one episode. I mean, you could have an entire podcast dedicated just to the history of childbirth. I, I, I don't mean episode. I mean podcast, right? In this episode, uh, just one episode, I'm going to try to give a very introductory, very basic history of childbirth in America, ranging from about the 18th century to the early 20th century. I will not in any way, shape, or form do justice to the deeply nuanced and complex histories of childbirth in minority groups such as Native Americans, Black and enslaved women, I mean, Latinx communities. Like, there is a lot more to this story than I'm ever going to be able to get to here. White women's experience with childbirth was not and is not the universal experience. And I don't want anyone to get that impression from this episode. We just don't have the space or the time in this episode to to give you the the complete comprehensive picture. And so think of this maybe as, you know, 
part one of more to come or as a partner episode to other episodes that we'll do in the future. It I don't want you to interpret it as us just being ignorant of or ignoring those histories. So we'll do our best to come back and do more histories on this topic in the future. For instance, right here on my desk, I have the book Laboring Women by Jennifer Morgan about um, childbearing in uh, among enslaved African-American women. And I also have Brianna Theobald's new book, Reproduction on the Reservation, which is about childbirth and pregnancy on the Crow Reservation in Montana. And so th- those are just two examples of many of other fantastic work on this subject that we just don't have the time to get into in this episode. So for now, we are really just going to scratch the surface, mostly by using Judith Waltzer Levitt's original and initial study on this topic as our guide. Also, I want to acknowledge from the beginning that we recognize and honor the fact that cisgender women are not the only people who get pregnant, give birth, nurse babies, and provide nurturing care for children. The scholarship that we're relying on for today focuses on the experience of cisgender women, as far as the historical record can tell us. So I'm going to use the term woman and she, her, hers when referring to pregnant and birthing people. And finally, this episode is going to contain some descriptions of pregnancy loss, stillbirth, and traumatic birth experiences. So if you know that those are triggering topics for you, you might want to set this one out. Childbirth is such a routine part of life that in some ways it can become invisible, especially historically. History, people often assume, is made up of major events, political elections, wars, etc., not routine biological processes. But for something so invisible, it's made up a significant portion of the lives of women across time. Take, for instance, the women of the Holyoke family, Mary and her daughters Susanna and Judith. Mary Vile Holyoke married in 1759, and for the next 23 years, she gave birth 12 times. If you look at a pie chart of this part of her life, it's divided into nearly perfect thirds. One third of that period she spent pregnant, another third nursing, and a final third free from reproductive duties. If our calculations are correct, she spent 108 months of her life pregnant, roughly nine years. Her daughter Susanna bore eight babies during the first 20 years of her marriage. Judith bore eight and 18. The rest of the women of the Holyoke family bore between two and 10 children. The one who had two only stopped there because she died after only two years of marriage. And don't forget that for each of those pregnancies, women then spent at least 12 months, often more, nursing their babies, meaning that literally decades of their lives were dominated by reproductive labor. Sounds exhausting. Sounds like our lives, Marissa. (laughs) Sure does. We are recording this episode with a baby strapped to Marissa's front true. Numerous pregnancies and births, often in rapid succession, was perhaps the most ubiquitous experience of womanhood. But while childbirth might have been ubiquitous, it wasn't routine. As Levitt states, it, quote, cast a shadow over women's lives. Women understood intimately that pregnancy and birth held deadly potential. Cotton Mather, the Puritan minister, warned women in a widely distributed sermon that when they conceived, they, quote, ought to know your death has entered into you. 
Women had to prepare throughout their pregnancy for multiple potential outcomes. The arrival of a newborn that would require a cradle and swaddling, a stillborn that would require burial, even her own death, which would leave her family and even perhaps a new baby without a matriarch. This example isn't American, and it's actually much earlier than the time period we're focused on, but it's just the one that came to mind as so perfectly illustrative of this phenomenon. In 1622, a woman named Elizabeth Jocelyn had a perfectly healthy pregnancy. Nevertheless, she knew the risks inherent in childbirth, and so she prepared throughout her pregnancy for her own death. She made a sheet to be buried in and started composing a letter to her unborn child full of motherly advice in case she did not survive the baby's birth. It turned out Jocelyn was prescient. Though her pregnancy was normal and the birth uncomplicated, she nevertheless died of purpural fever. Purpural fever, just this is going to come up over and over again, was a common name for uterine infection and sepsis that was usually caused by the introduction of bacteria into the genital tract by doctors with unclean hands and tools. It was the most common cause of, of maternal death. Women, even those who had never had a child, knew that childbirth could be deadly. Almost all women would have known someone who had died during or after birth. And of course, many women would have experienced the loss of a mother, sister, or other female relative from childbirth. Sarah Jane Stevens was terrified during both her pregnancies in the late 19th century because her own mother had died during childbirth and wrote often of her fears to family members and physicians. Her brother, a doctor, tried to reassure her that their mother's death was because of medical errors and that those errors would never happen to Sarah Jane, but this didn't ease her mind. Some women weren't terrified but pragmatic regarding the risks of birth. Clara Clough Lenroot wrote in her diary about her hopes for her baby should Clara not survive its birth, instructing anyone who consulted her diary to allow her mother and sister to raise her baby. When Clara did have her baby and both were healthy and happy, her husband added a little note in her diary. Dear Clara, Mama and Bertha won't have to take care of your baby. Thank God. End quote. When Ellen Regal wrote to her brother about her sister Emma's pregnancy in 1872, she referred to the birth as the valley of the shadow of death that she must soon enter. A young woman named Nettie Fowler McCormick wrote a prayer in her diary. Oh God, preserve my life to my husband and children, end quote. And I should say, I had to like restrain myself writing this episode sometimes because Judith Walter Levitt's book has so many of these really poignant anecdotes in it. I mean, it's it's really impressive just in terms of the research that she must have put into it, reading so many diaries and letters and things like this to pull out these, these little stories. Um, it's just, it's really striking. The one that I just love is this one about Clara um, writing her <laughs> intentions for her baby and her husband then writing, Dear Clara, <laughs> your mother won't have to take care of your baby. I just think it's really sweet. Many women even prepared informal wills to help them feel prepared, just in case they did not survive their deliveries. Bessie Rudd wrote a letter to her husband about her preparations. She wrote, quote, I have everything in order and fixed to my mind should any unforeseen sorrow come to me. 
You know we must think of all things, Edward, and have everything in readiness. I sometimes think I am ready to die, though life was never dearer to me than now, with you to live for and to help along life's pathway. Sadly, women also had to emotionally prepare for the very real possibility that their baby might die at its birth or sometime later in its childhood. It wasn't uncommon to lose a baby and then be pregnant again within weeks or months. It also wasn't uncommon to lose an older child while pregnant. The emotional toll that this would all take just cannot be overstated. Sarah Hale, the mother of famous 19th century orator Edward Everett Hale, who is, you might recognize that name, he's famous for giving like a one million hour speech right before Lincoln gave the like two minute Gettysburg Address. Um, His mother, Sarah Hale, reflected on her childbearing years on her 25th wedding anniversary saying this. I have borne 11 children and have been permitted to keep until this day seven. One blossom of hope just dawned upon this world, lived but a brief hour, and was transplanted by the all-knowing creator into his gardens of joy. Another remained with us for seven months, learned to return smile for smile, and was just beginning to show the germs of intelligence when a short space of suffering and anxiety was closed by our laying him away in the dark chamber, which was then but a few paces from the nursery where we had cherished and nourished him. Then came another bright cherub, our darling other Susie, bright and hopeful and promising with her earnest and deep glance and her thoughtful spirit, and in her seventh year, it pleased God to take her from us. Three weeks had passed away after her death when another little girl was given us. She has been spared to this time, is like, very like her sister. God grant that she may be long spared to us and be so trained here that she may be joined to the other Susie in heaven. Since then, another little girl has been given and taken, and now there are seven here and four awaiting us on the other side of Jordan. I know that that's a really long quote, but I couldn't help but share it. It's a really powerful reminder of the emotional risks, not just the physical risks, the emotional risks involved in pregnancy, childbearing, and mothering. It's not all that easy to get good statistics on maternal mortality rates during the 18th and 19th centuries. But in general, mortality rates gradually decreased over the course of the 19th century, leveling off around the turn of the 20th century and then starting to go in the other direction. Most available statistics start in the early 20th century. Levitt found that deaths from maternity-related causes at the turn of the 20th century were approximately 65 times greater than, their, than they were in the 1980s. Remember, this book was published in the late 1980s, so that's kind of her frame of reference. To look at it another way, in the early 1900s, 1 in 154 women died in childbirth. But it was actually worse than that, considering that women almost always had more than one pregnancy and black and immigrant women often had upwards of four or five pregnancies, the mortality risk went way up. If a woman had five pregnancies, her risk went from one in 154 to one in 30. And even setting aside the risk of death for mother and baby, there was still the inevitability of pain and suffering. Women were afraid of the pain and worried that they would be weakened and unhealthy after their birth. These fears compounded with the knowledge that pregnancy just could not be avoided. 
While some women did know of ways to limit their fertility, as we've talked about in other episodes, others didn't have that knowledge or the ability to prevent conception and found themselves pregnant again quickly after traumatic births. Agnes Reed lamented getting pregnant again after her first child was born, saying, quote, I confess I had dreaded it with a dread that every mother must feel in repeating the experience of childbearing. I could only think that another birth would mean another pitiful struggle of days duration followed by months of weakness as it had been before. This was the experience that men often just could not understand. Clara Lenroot's husband, this is the one from earlier who wrote in her diary to say that she had survived childbirth and her mom wouldn't have to take care of her baby, also wrote in Clara's diary about his shock at the ordeal that she had been through. He wrote this, quote, everything is all right, but at what cost? My dear wife, what you have suffered and you have been so brave. I have seen the greatest suffering this day that I have ever known or imagined. All of this is important context for understanding how childbirth changed between the 18th and 20th centuries. In the 18th century, birth was entirely the domain of women. Babies were virtually always born at home, sometimes the mother's home, sometimes an ancestral home, and in the setting that the laboring mother chose. There are some exceptions, though more so in Europe, uh, where lying-in hospitals were developed for working-class women, and there they could sometimes get medical care while they were in labor, and during their kind of their lying-in, so the, the the month approaching labor. Women learned how to prepare for birth and the arrival of a baby through their female kin networks, and when labor began, they didn't call for the doctor, but for the women, sometimes called gossips. Among the women that were summoned was the midwife, typically a local woman who had learned how to deliver babies and care for laboring women through informal apprenticeships with older women, often a female relative. But in addition to the midwife were female friends and relatives who did everything from holding the laboring mother's hand to bringing food and drink to telling stories to providing emotional support. The only time a doctor, always male, was called was if the birth went very badly. Midwives had a very non-interventionist approach to birth. Most often, their job was to sit with a laboring mother until birth was imminent and then help guide the baby out. Occasionally, they might prepare the perineum and cervix or give suggestions about what the mother should do to speed labor, like walking or squatting, etc. Most births are long and pretty boring, so they were a time when women gathered and socialized, sometimes over a stiff drink. But in the late 18th century, the world of the all-female birthing room began to change. To illustrate that change, let's use the example of Dr. William Shippen Jr. Shippen was born in Philadelphia in 1736 and followed his father into the practice of medicine. He studied medicine in Philadelphia and then refined his medical education in London and Edinburgh before returning to Philadelphia in 1762 to begin his practice. And he, like also is like an anatomy professor uh, at that time as well. While he was in London, Shippen learned the practice of midwifery from the quote-unquote man midwife, Dr. Colin McKenzie. What he learned would soon be called obstetrics to try to differentiate it from what the traditional female midwives did. 
During this period in Europe, influenced by the Enlightenment, medicine was professionalizing and becoming more ruled by the principles of science. Physicians, who were becoming the authority figures over the human body and its medical needs, began to consider the fact that birth was the sort of one medical event that didn't fall under their authority. Man midwives were those first male physicians who began to specialize in delivering babies, largely out of the belief that midwives were unclean, untrained old crones who had no place presiding at uh, an important medical event. So Shippen learned from one of the first of what we'll come to call OBGYNs. And then he brought that knowledge back with him from Great Britain to the United States. When Shippen returned, he became the first anatomy lecturer in the United States, specializing in lectures on the anatomy of pregnant and birthing women. Eventually, Shippen opened a private midwifery practice in Philadelphia, selling his birth services to wealthy white women in the city. Shippen's practice was hugely successful, and he became the go-to obstetrician for Philadelphia's elite. It's worth asking here, why on earth did women who had birthed forever, surrounded by women, and attended by women, suddenly begin seeking out male physicians to attend their births? There's a certain appeal today to romanticizing the world of birth before the entrance of the man midwives and the obstetricians. And I'm I'm not just saying that because I've spent a lot of time in mommy groups on Facebook. <laughs> although although you have. <laughs> although I have where uh this romanticization, shall we say, is very popular. Um, As women today advocate for the right to determine their own birth experiences and push back on the control that obstetricians wield over labor and delivering options, there's this temptation to think that before medicalization, women were empowered by the all-female, non-interventionist, traditional birthing room. In that view, the entrance of male obstetricians is like a hostile takeover by the medical patriarchy. That's the interpretation that appeared, for instance, in the pamphlet that we discussed in our episode on the myth of the midwife witch by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses. This interpretation made sense, especially given the frustration and anger that many feminists felt having had their birth experiences controlled by medical authorities. And largely, I think this is really important, That isn't wrong, right? Scientific doctors did want to push out the midwives. They did want to move birth out of those all-female spaces, and they did want to assert their authority over this medical event. But it wasn't quite that simple. The reality is that women wanted to hire male birth attendants. For one thing, being able to hire a male doctor, one skilled in the elite field of anatomy and trained in the finest schools in Great Britain, became a status symbol. But there are two other reasons that are more specific to the experience of childbirth. Think about everything we've talked about over the beginning of this episode. Each pregnancy came along with fears about the pain of childbirth and the not insignificant risk of death for both mother and child. Midwives were skilled, but they were there to attend the birth, intervening only when absolutely necessary. And if things went sideways, there was very little they could do. Male doctors offered two things that midwives just could not, pain relief and forceps. 
While today, those things are demonized as symbolic of the medicalization of childbirth, they were gratefully welcomed by 19th century women. 18th century women, too. Well, not the pain relief part, but... That's so typical, Marissa. 18th century matters, too. (laughs) No, but to be fair... uh, um, pain relief was not a thing in the 18th century for childbirth. So you're absolutely right. 100% correct. But the force up thing, that was like a huge draw for 18th century mothers. They were like, if this baby gets uh-huh. stuck, I want right. someone who can use forceps. Yeah. Yes. And, and I, um, well, sort of my, my discussion or our discussion of forceps is going to be a, a little bit shortened just because it, it's a, difficult thing to discuss I think um it's just a little touchy but um I do want to acknowledge that you're absolutely right forceps use goes way back before the 19th century I'm not saying (laughs) that it was like invented in the 19th century it just becomes more commonly used in the United States in like the late 18th century and and forward but yes, forceps were first invented in the 16th century in Europe by a family of barber surgeons that were known as the Chamberlain family. They were probably first invented by Peter Chamberlain, who served as an early man midwife to several royal women. So there's another indication there that this that man midwives existed, you know, even back into the 1500s. Generations of Chamberlains served as royal barber surgeons in the French and English courts. And the family kept the forceps within the family, uh, meaning that they were really only used at royal births. So like the, the family were very protective of this instrument that they had invented and only they used it. They didn't like share information about it outside of the family, which is weird. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Shitty. I've always thought that was really strange. Yeah. In the 18th century, when the Chamberlain forceps came to light to the public, Scottish man midwife William Smelly took the earlier tool and refined it, making them shorter and more curved and then also bringing them into wider use, making them kind of more public. Even as the Smelly forceps became more standard, the tool was not used by midwives as the use of such instruments, along with therapies like bloodletting or administering heavy medications, was considered the domain of trained physicians. Once doctors like William Shippen began providing obstetrical care in early America, the use of forceps became more common in the U.S. And I want to be clear Forceps weren't necessarily pleasant, right? Forceps could cause lasting damage to the cervix or uterus if they were used improperly. And from reading Judith Walter Levitt's book, they were often used improperly. Women didn't like them because they were comfortable or like risk-free, right? Rather, it was because forceps could mean the difference between a difficult but successful birth or a dead baby. Or a dead mom, right? And this is major trigger warning. This is graphic. I'm going to keep it very brief. But if you're sensitive to this kind of thing, you really might want to skip ahead about a minute or two. Without forceps, if a baby was stuck in the birth canal or in the pelvis, whether because of a weird presentation, breech birth, something like that, a large head, a small pelvis, whatever, there was just no way to get the baby out without killing it. If a midwife recognized that a baby could not be delivered and the mother's life was in danger, she needed to call in a doctor who would then usually perform a craniotomy on the fetus and then remove the baby in pieces. 
And so as risky as forceps might be, they could save a mother from this deeply traumatizing birth experience. Next to the fears of death, Judith Walter Levitt says that pain was probably the single part of birth most hated by birthing women. Which is such a funny statement. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like other... It it hurts. It fucking hurts. Right. <laughs> right. Other than death, they were pretty not looking forward to the pain. Well, duh. Right. Um, <laughs> women, which is like the same as now. Um, women described even healthy, normal birth experiences as near-death experiences because of the intensity of their pain. When Dr. Shippen attended the births of elite Philadelphia women, he didn't have much to offer in the way of pain. Certainly no epidurals in the late 18th century, but he could offer opium, both straight and prepared in alcohol in the form of laudanum. In 1799, Dr. Shippen attended the birth of Sally Drinker Downing. Hey, it's... That's Elizabeth Drinker's daughter. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so she attended the birth of Sally Drinker Downing, daughter of the wealthy Drinker family, um, Henry and Elizabeth Drinker. Sally had a history of difficult births and was very agitated. In an attempt to calm her, relieve her pain, and move labor along, Dr. Shippen gave Sally 80 to 90 drops of laudanum. Jesus effing Christ. That's so much. Right. (laughs) I know. He also drained 14 ounces of blood, um, but that's a story for another day. When the laudanum didn't do the trick, he gave her three grains of opium. So girlfriend was high. (laughs) Yeah, she was like out of commission. Mm -hmm. Right. I always tell this story um, in class uh, when I'm talking about childbirth and like I'm... (laughs) Students are like, holy crap, right? Like, how could she, how could she even do anything? And that was kind of the whole idea, right? Like, you've given her 90 drops of laudanum, you've drained 14 ounces of blood, then you give her a bunch of however much three grains of opium is. Like, she's going to lay on the bed and you're going to just kind of yank right. that baby out. You're going to have right? to Like, pull the she's going to be a lot easier to manage. <laughs> right. Seems like it was more for the doctor than for her. Certainly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a major part of it. Um, either way, these opiates were not ideal. They were, as we've been discussing, very heavy sedatives and painkillers, and they could cause just as many problems as they solved. But in the mid-19th century, other sedatives became available, specifically chloroform and ether. Both were administered through inhalation, and when appropriately administered, they would relieve pain without entirely incapacitating or knocking out the laboring woman. I'm surprised Sally Drinker Downing, you know, woke up at all. I know. <laughs> right? Like, I'm, after... I'm surprised she didn't, like, sleep for a week right, after Right, or, like, that. go into a coma or something. For sure, right? And ether and chloroform... Um, offered that pain relief and that and a much milder sedation so women were calmed but they weren't out out right they weren't they weren't heavily drugged ether and chloroform came into use in the late 1830s and late in that decade they were occasionally and experimentally being used in childbirth soon Women more generally learned about the existence of these forms of pain relief and enthusiastically requested it from their doctors. It was actually doctors who were hesitant to dole out the drugs. Philadelphia doctor Charles Miggs, for instance, worried about the safety of the drugs, saying 
Should I exhibit the remedy for pain to a thousand patients in labor merely to prevent the physiological pain and for no other motive? And should I, in consequence, destroy only one of them? I should feel disposed to clothe me in sackcloth and cast ashes on my head for the remainder of my days. Little dramatic. For him, the chance of just losing one patient to a new and relatively unstudied drug just wasn't worth it, no matter how much pain his patients were in. Miggs, though, it should be said, also believed that birth pains were, quote, a desirable, salutary, and conservative manifestation of life force. Not really for any misogynistic or religious reasons, but because he believed that births just went more smoothly when women were in tune with their contractions. And he's not totally wrong. No, he's not. But, I mean, it's also easy for him to say because... Right, it's easy for him to say that they're salutary. (laughs) And and it's easy for him to say, well, I don't care how much pain they're in. This isn't worth the risk. And it's like, well... Yeah, you don't really, it's not, you don't have to experience the pain, so, you know, you don't care. Um, So, in 1848, Walter Channing, an elite Boston physician, conducted a survey among area doctors to assess their feelings about ether and childbirth. He found that nearly all doctors reported that their patients were aware of the existence of ether and that they often asked for it, but that they only actually administered it when their patients outright demanded it. But as the decade went on, doctors who did administer ether began to publicly report that it was successful, encouraging more doctors to use it. News traveled among women, too. When a Dr. Allen of Massachusetts arrived at one woman's house, he found that she had been laboring for 12 hours and was convinced she was dying. He administered chloroform and safely delivered her baby shortly thereafter. The woman was so relieved that she told all her friends that with chloroform, it was nothing to have babies and that she was now happy to plan for another. As word spread among women, they put increased pressure on their doctors to provide pain relief, and soon it was in much more common use. Not every doctor was crazy about using it for every patient, but others used it at every birth where it was requested and reported it was a real game changer. But ether and chloroform weren't without risk or complication. One thing that posed a challenge was dosing. Ether and chloroform were both administered in a kind of haphazard ways. They were typically dripped onto a napkin or a handkerchief that was held over the patient's face while they breathed in the fumes. That required an extra set of hands, though. You know, someone to stand there and, like, drip it onto the napkin and watch the patient while your, you know, other hands were doing stuff in, in the, the bottom region, right? <laughs> um And most doctors just didn't have a nurse or an assistant, so they sometimes used the laboring woman herself as a kind of self-anesthesiologist. One doctor explained that, quote, if there is no one present to assist me in the final stages of labor, I have the expectant mother hold a drinking glass with the bottom filled with cotton and upon which the chloroform is poured, then have them hold the glass over their nose. When their hands become unsteady and the glass falls away from the nose, I know they're sufficiently asleep to give them relief, and then I continue to accelerate the delivery. (laughs) I love that story. Another doctor described a sort of juggling act of drug administration, pulling the cork of the chloroform bottle out with his teeth if his hands were busy, you know, with baby stuff. It could also be a way for another woman in the birthing room to stay involved, holding the soaked handkerchief for the doctor. 
Another risk was that pain relief had the potential to slow labor down, make it hard for women to control their muscles for effective pushing or to knock a patient out entirely, all of which could result in increased use of birth tools like forceps. But when administered properly, it could relax women and make birth a less desperate, terrifying experience. One doctor described a woman who, upon, quote, the first inhalation, burst out in a beautiful song and continued singing one after another until her babe, a large boy, first child, was born. And now, I don't know about you, Marissa, but that certainly sounds nicer than all of the horror stories that we talked about at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say, before we move on to talk about other later forms of, of pain relief, it should probably go without saying here, these are all stories about white, middle and upper class women, largely located in cities, women who have access to doctors, um, who are familiar with this, with these forms of pain relief and who have the ability to administer it, right? This is by no means something that is accessible to poor women. It's not accessible to women of color. It's not accessible on reservations. It's not accessible to immigrants, right? We're talking about a very particular slice of society. Fancy people. Fancy people. But toward the turn of the 20th century, as anesthesiology became its own field and more women came to have high expectations of pain relief, doctors began trying to find a more efficient form of pain relief, something that might work faster, earlier, and with more standardized administration. For some doctors, especially women who were slowly but surely entering the profession, it seemed almost like malpractice that there weren't better alternatives for laboring women. Take, for instance, this, written by a female doctor in 1908. Quote, I know of no suffering that is more dreaded by our sex than that which confronts them as they heroically take their lives in their hands and down into the very shadows of death itself in order that they fulfill the plans of the creator and populating this world of ours. Is it necessary that such suffering be endured? End quote. If I didn't tell you the date, that quote would sound just like the ones from the beginning of this episode where women wrote their fears about dying in childbirth. For some doctors, it seemed anti-modern that better alternatives still hadn't been developed. So, scopolamine morphine introduced to the U.S. from Germany in the 1910s seemed like the long-awaited modernization. Scopolamine, which produced the condition that came to popularly be known as um, twilight sleep, could be administered very early in the labor and eliminated pain while also putting women into what is called an amnesic state. In this state, women could not form a memory of the time they were under the effects of the scopolamine morphine. In the best case scenario, scopolamine morphine removed all the fear and pain from the experience of childbirth. In 1914, a Mrs. Cecil Stewart described her experience with the drug, quote, at midnight, I was awakened by a very sharp pain. The head nurse gave me an injection of scopolamine morphine. I woke up the next morning about half past seven. The door opened and the head nurse brought in my baby. I was so happy. Using this drug, a woman more or less went to sleep and woke up feeling fantastic, according to its biggest boosters, um, to a cute baby and no recollection whatsoever of the dreaded event. But twilight sleep birth was complicated. 
just because a woman didn't remember it when she woke up didn't mean her body didn't actually experience the birth. Women thrashed and screamed in pain, but weren't psychologically present, so they couldn't control their movements or their muscles. Because of this, they needed to be carefully observed and restrained throughout the birth process. They were placed in kind of crib beds that had curtains and walls to keep them from flinging themselves out of the bed or even sometimes getting up and walking around in some cases. When the baby finally entered the birth canal, they were typically brought out using forceps and other tools since women couldn't control their muscles to effectively push. In the early 20th century, twilight sleep was controversial, and not necessarily for the reason that we today think of twilight sleep as controversial. In today's culture, twilight sleep has come to represent the zenith of male doctors' attempts to control the natural processes of women's bodies by medicalizing childbirth. But in the early 20th century, it caused controversy because, not unlike ether and chloroform, women wanted it and doctors were reluctant to provide it. In 1914, McClure magazine published an article by two women with no medical training describing the German use of scopolamine and criticizing sexist American doctors for failing to keep up with cutting-edge science. They claimed that American doctors relied too much on forceps, which caused birth injuries and infections, while German doctors provided women natural, instrument, and pain-free births. They believed that twilight sleep meant less forcep use, which is not necessarily the case. Middle and upper class white women rallied to the cause, and articles repeating the argument of the McClure's piece proliferated in popular magazines and newspapers. Women believed that doctors were withholding scopolamine because of their traditional and sexist belief that women should feel the pain of childbirth, or perhaps just that they couldn't be bothered. Two of scopolamine's biggest boosters, Marguerite Tracy and Mary Boyd, claimed that doctors didn't use twilight sleep simply because it took too much time. In the defense of the doctors, the science on the safety of scopolamine was not clear. Some individual doctors in medical journals lauded it, while others warned that it was risky and not well studied. Some doctors were early adopters, like Dr. James Harar, who traveled to Germany to be trained in scopolamine administration and confidently stated that, quote, if the male had to endure this suffering, I think he would resort very precipitously to something that might relieve the pain. On the other hand, major medical journals were warning that the drug was dangerous. The Journal of the American Medical Association declared that, quote, this method has been thoroughly investigated, tried, and found wanting because of the dangers connected with it. Some journals did both. The journal American Medicine, it's not the Journal of American Medicine, it's just the journal American Medicine. American Medicine, the journal. <laughs> right published some nine articles in support of Twilight Sleep and also published an, at least one editorial warning that the drug was potentially dangerous. So a little of both. Mm -hmm. Frustrated with doctors' slowness to adopt the drug, middle and upper class American club women formed the National Twilight Sleep Association. Club women were progressive era reformers who used their role as women, mothers, and wives to improve society. The NTSA's leaders included women doctors like Dr. Eliza Taylor Ransom and Dr. Berta Van Hoosen, and political activists including Rita Child Dorr of the Committee on Industrial Conditions of Women and Children and Mary Ware Dennett of the National Suffers Association and later the National Birth Control League. 
These women saw the fight for twilight sleep as part of the fight for other civil rights. The right to a more comfortable and less terrifying birth experience, they believed, was part of the fight for freedom, human rights, and bodily autonomy. The NTSA sponsored rallies across the United States and staged smaller events in department stores, quote, between the markdown suits and table linens, end quote, where they could gain the attention of working class women. Typically, a woman would share her experience with scopolamine as a way of making the drug feel more real to those who wouldn't be reading about it in the pages of McClure's. Frances Carmody became a common twilight sleep speaker, telling audiences, quote, I experienced absolutely no pain. An hour after my child was born, I ate a hearty breakfast. The third day, I went for an automobile ride. The twilight sleep was wonderful, end quote. I laughed when I read this. Because I think about an hour after Lulu was born, I ate a plate of chicken tenders. <laughs> I don't know why, but the nurse was like, you should order lunch right now. And I was like, actually, chicken tenders sound fantastic. And then I think the third day, I also went for an automobile ride. <laughs> an automobile ride. <laughs> <laughs> because I went home from the hospital. Anyway. Ah, sadly, this movement for Twilight Sleep was dealt a blow when the same Mrs. Carmody died in childbirth in August 1915. Even though her doctors and husband insisted to the press that Francis's death had nothing to do with scopolamine because Mrs. Carmody had been such a Twilight Sleep booster and then happened to die in childbirth, it nevertheless made people skeptical of the drug's safety. Undeterred, women continued to pressure doctors to provide scopolamine as an option for pain relief. It's not that women were stupid or desperate to avoid discomfort, but rather that they wanted to have the right to choose their birth experiences for themselves. In this way, even though twilight sleep seems so different from older birthing traditions, progressive era women's activism about twilight sleep was actually right in line with the actions of earlier generations of women who had made their own birthing choices. We mentioned before that women under twilight sleep needed to be restrained in crib beds and kept under watchful eyes at all times. Scopolamine also required injections at regular intervals after their first dose early in labor, which meant that women had to be in a place where doctors and nurses were close at hand. In other words, the hospital. The NTSA and the demand for twilight sleep helped bring about yet another revolution in childbirth, the move from birthing at home to birthing in the hospital. As we also mentioned before, nearly all women gave birth at home before the 20th century, with the exception of charity hospitals and medical school maternity wards, which provided free care for working class and poor women. When man midwives like William Shippen entered the profession in the late 18th century, they were still being hired by an individual woman and her family and invited into her home. And even as far back as that time, male physicians complained about the lack of cleanliness in the home setting. Doctors complained that women refused to stay in one position on a Kelly pad, a rubber sheet designed to flow blood and other fluids away off the bed and away from the patient. They complained about the difficulty of crawling all over large beds to administer ether or to access the birth canal with forceps. They complain. Can I just interrupt there that there are all these hilarious stories of doctors like being really irritated that they had to like 
like chase women around on like big giant beds, like while they were birthing and changing positions. And that that was one reason that they were like, get in this twin bed in the hospital. <laughs> it sounds about right, though. Um, yep. <laughs> um, they complained that being in the home where nervous husbands sat downstairs and women attendants watched carefully made it impossible for them to prepare women for birth by shaving them and washing the genital area with antibacterial soaps. Birth in the home, to put it simply, gave women too much control and doctors too little. The advent of germ theory led to doctors becoming incredibly scrupulous about antisepsis. In most cases, it meant diligent hand washing and instrument sterilization, clean sheets and garments, and use of a sterile Kelly pad, all of which was difficult in a private home. Some doctors insisted on shaving and washing patients with antibacterial soap. Others took this even more seriously, insisting that women be cleansed inside as well as out through the use of enemas and antibacterial douches, and even laying a bactericide-soaked towel over the crowning baby's head. All of this was really only possible in the hospital. The president of the American Gynecological Society wrote in 1898 that, quote, women in well-conducted lying-in asylums, which were like hospitals for birthing women, are far safer from purpural infection than those who are attended in their own houses, even though they be brownstone fronts. In other words, women were safer from postpartum infections in hospitals, even in charity hospitals, than they were in their own homes, even in nice homes. Hospitals were cleaner, therefore safer, and could offer pain relief in the form of twilight sleep, or at least this was the perception. Starting in the 1920s and 30s, women began to see hospitals as emblematic of all the cutting-edge medical care, turned from wanting to control individual aspects of their birthing experience, and instead towards choosing the right doctor who would take care of everything. The magazine Hygieia told readers to, quote, see an obstetrician early. He will take care of the rest, end quote. Other magazines published horrifying stories about women who died in childbirth because they clung to old-fashioned ways instead of seeing a specialist and going to a hospital. Social reasons also drove women to hospitals. In the mid-20th century, women were not necessarily surrounded by the same networks of women that their grandmothers had had. It wasn't just finding a midwife to be present at the birth, but also someone to care for the postpartum mother and baby. As one woman wrote, Sure, it would be nice to have babies born at home, but who's going to bathe the baby, bring the mother's tray, change her sheets? It goes without saying that the new father is clearly not expected to do any of those tasks and actually was probably at work anyways. Without those traditional networks of women around her, a woman who gave birth at home would likely need to be up and cooking, cleaning, and caring for older children within hours of delivering a newborn. In addition to pain relief, cleanliness, and scientific medical care, hospitals could provide nursing care and a chance to rest. A description of birth in the 1930s went like this, quote, Arriving at the hospital, she is immediately given the benefit of one of the modern analgesics or painkillers. Soon, she is in a dreamy, half-conscious state at the height of a pain, sound asleep between spasms. She knows nothing of being taken to a spotlessly clean delivery room, placed on a sterile table, draped with sterile sheets. Neither does she see her attendants, the doctor and nurses, garbed for her protection in sterile white gowns and gloves, nor the shiny, boiled instruments and antiseptic solutions. 
She does not hear the cry of her baby when he feels the chill of this cold world or see the care with which the doctor repairs such lacerations as may have occurred. She is, as most of us want to be when severe pain has us in its grasp, asleep. Finally, she wakes in smiles, a mother with no recollection of having become one. To us today, this sounds like a horror story. And of course, there are scary elements. This is a story about a woman separated from any loved ones or support people at the whim of medical authorities and the thrall of a medication that leaves her in a dreamy, maybe nightmare-like state. But at the same time, she's relieved of the pain of childbirth, which caused fear and anxiety for many generations of laboring women. As Judith Levitt argues, quote, women did not view the stay in the hospital as a time when they lost important parts of the traditional birth experience, but rather as a time when they gained protection for life and health, aspects of birth that had been elusive and uncertain in the past. They gave up some kinds of control for others because on balance, the new benefits seemed more important, end quote. But, I bet you can see this coming, the hospital did not exactly deliver on all of its promises. Maternal mortality did not improve in hospitals. In fact, mortality rates from home birth were consistently lower than hospital births between 1900 and 1950. Hospitals, far from being sterile utopias, were actually full of germs, which doctors and nurses carried from patient to patient. Maternal mortality rates eventually did go down, but not because of the move to the hospital. Antibiotics, introduced in the 1940s, finally provided a way to combat postpartum infections. Even if they escaped infection, women recalled negative experiences with hospital births, the terror of being strapped to beds under sedation, being left alone in cold delivery rooms, and then being at the mercy of a string of strangers. So, was the move to the hospital good or bad? Was the medicalization of birth good or bad? Was the introduction of pain relief into childbirth good or bad? Well, as we always say, and it's a cliche at this point, but it doesn't make it less true, it's complicated. Home births provided more freedom of choice. They offered familiar surroundings and the possibility of support people, but also became increasingly difficult in a practical sense. Hospital births provided the perception of cleanliness and medical expertise, not to mention pain relief, but they could be disempowering and alienating. It's unsurprising, then, that starting in the 1960s, birth became a common topic of discussion in those feminist consciousness-raising groups, where women shared their frustrations and fears about birth. Women shared their terrifying experiences with Twilight Sleep and their feelings of lack of control with Betty Friedan, who published them in her classic 1963 feminist text, The Feminine Mystique. As women became aware that their bad experiences weren't isolated events, but rather the result of the patriarchal medical system, feminists began to demand better from their doctors. They experimented again with birthing at home and founded feminist birthing centers where they could have the benefits of both medical science and the traditional support networks of women, as well as controlling their birthing positions and have freedom of movement. Since the 1970s, medicalized childbirth and its counterpoint, home birth, have ever been at odds. But if there is a through line, it's this. Since the earliest days of women bearing children in the United States, they have sought one thing, choice. Yeah, I mean, none of this is surprising to me. I think we um, 
it's really uh, tempting to say, oh, well, women were, you know, men took over um, the medical field and kind of disenfranchised um, women birth workers. And so women had to go into the hospital and be subject to all of this medicalization and all these interventions. And there's a part of that, you know, that's true. There's a part of that that is true. And we, we can see that with women's yes. um their birth outcomes not getting better after going to the hospital right so they're they're not getting that trade-off you know um but we i think forget and we we do women a disservice when we don't pay attention to when they did have a choice and in childbirth mm-hmm. a lot of women made their own choices um, right. Especially mm-hmm. like fancy white women or middle class white women. Um, right. Obviously, this isn't the case for everybody. Um, but a lot of women, such as the ones we've talked about today, had birth choices. And when they didn't feel like their choices were being respected, they they demanded that they be heard. So. Um, right. Right. I love the part that you wrote about with like why women would want to be in the hospital. One of the things being that, like, they take care of your baby for a couple of days while you recover. That's, like, right. something I, – I don't yeah. do hospital births, and I don't regret it exactly, but that is – I did a hospital birth for my first, and I was kind of like, oh, man, like, I could have just sent that kid to the nursery and gotten some sleep. You know, um, <laughs> right. you do miss out on that. It's like a give and take yeah. sort of thing, and it all has to come down to um, – what makes sense for you as a person and for yeah. your family. Yeah. And and I found that part, I think, particularly interesting, too, because I often, um, even when I teach this, I, you know, I teach it as, like, very strictly, like, um, you know, the, the, obs- the male obstetricians became involved, and then it was, like, this, you know, slippery slope of, like, more intervention, and then the hospital, like, and you kind of fail to see how women themselves shaped the move to the hospital right and and how it wasn't just about the medical decision making it was also about this you know lack of community around them to do those things that like before a midwife might come and stay at your house for a week or two weeks right and be present at the birth but then what a postpartum doula would do right like stay at your home and and you know things like help you get into the shower or like bring you a cup of soup in your bed so you can rest or whatever um the hospital does afford some of that not a ton i've had four hospital births and i'd say that that aspect has uh diminished (laughs) um the the emphasis is much more on like you like they do all do rooming in now at Suburban anyway at the the hospital mm-hmm. near us um, where I've had all four of my kids that like you can't send your baby to the nursery. They won't take them. <laughs> <laughs> like Baby stays with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I found that really challenging this time because I got well, I always found it challenging either way because you get no sleep and it, it, it's just it's uncomfortable. Right. Like everything about it is uncomfortable. But it's where I'm going with this very long and like disorganized thought is that it didn't occur to me until doing this research how much the social aspect of it shaped the shift to the hospital as as much as the medical aspect mm-hmm. of it for sure yeah. 
No, I, I really hadn't thought of that either, um, which is silly because mm-hmm. I should have because I thought of it myself when yeah, I was weighing yeah. hospital versus out-of-hospital birth myself, right. you know. But I guess I didn't yeah. really think about um, historical women making making that same decision and weighing those same um, costs and benefits, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. My episode has touches on a lot of the stuff that you talk about. Um, oh, okay. Not like it's not a repetition at all. It just just kind of repeats, mm-hmm. or you know, touches on some of the things you talked about. But, um, you know, way more graphic and way more sad and way more dark. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you have that. So bear yeah. that in mind, listeners. You have that to look forward to next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I want to say, just before we go, I just want to remind everyone again, you know, we we really are aware that this is an episode about white women, about white um, middle and upper class women. And just to reiterate that this is is not, this story is not representative of the experiences of women of color, women um, in, you know, the working class, um, impoverished women, immigrant women. Like, I, I just want to make it very clear that this is not a universal story. And um, I really do hope to come back and do an episode on Brianna Theobald's book because I read it for this episode and just realized there was so much in it that it would do it a disservice to shove it into this episode. Um, but I highly recommend that book about um, pregnancy and birth on the the Crow Reservation as kind of a counterpoint to this. Like, you know, what was the experience when women were routinely denied choice? Um, same thing goes for books like Laboring Women by Jennifer Morgan about enslaved women, right, who also have a, an obviously a very, very different dynamic around pregnancy. And, and Medical birth. Bondage so, by Deirdre um, Cooper Owens fits yep, right in absolutely. this vein as well. Yeah, there are several. There's another one that um is escaping me also about enslaved women. There are there are lots of other stories to be told. We don't want anyone to get the um impression that this is, you know, the the final word on the history of birth in the United States. It's a history of birth in the United States and hopefully we'll come back. Avril will love that if we do more epi- more seasons on uh, or more series oh my God, on birth. She's going to be so mad <laughs> we'll have to sneak them into like other series series about yeah. like i don't know series about like money or something and then we'll be like okay well babies cost money and <laughs> and get those baby episodes in there <laughs> yep we can we can i'm sure okay well um if you haven't yet, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash digpodcast. You can check out our show notes and transcripts at digpodcast.org. And check us out on Twitter and Facebook at dig underscore history. We just recently put out a really fun and exciting announcement. Um, and if yeah. I'm not going to tell you what it is, you have to go look. You have Ooh. to go look. Um, so uh, Go ahead and check out our social so that you can uh, see what's coming up for us as podcasters and people. As podcasters and as mm-hmm. people. Uh, and don't forget that on our website, we have a whole section devoted 
just to using our episodes in the classroom or using podcasting in the classroom. So if you are, um, I think these episodes are coming out in, in August. If you are planning your syllabi, if you're coming up with your lesson plans for this semester and you want some new ideas um, and you're thinking about using one of our episodes, check that out. Um, and if you use any of those lesson plans or if you use an episode in the classroom, we would love to hear how it works, what your students thought. Um, let us know how it went so that we can kind of add that to our arsenal. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Yep. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the Historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Women had to prepare throughout their pregnancy for multiple potential income. No, <laughs> it, not incomes. Definitely not incomes. <laughs> <laughs> where it was request, requested, where it was request. Oh my God. <laughs> Even as the smelly forceps, the, the smelly forceps. Soon to be called obstetrics. Oh my god. Clean sheets and garments and the use of a. We also mentioned in that episode how, at the same time that the women's health movement was taking place, sorry, my voice got weird. A young woman, that's supposed to be a woman, right? A young specializing in lectures on the anatomy. An anatomy lecturer specializing in lectures on anatomy. No way. <laughs> he was very good Shut at his the job. Front door. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to rid myself of the child. Oh no, mother. Typically, a woman would share her experience with scopolamine as a way of making the drug. And I'm gonna pass her off to Pat because she's just getting more and more annoying. Goodbye, baby. Say bye bye, Sarah. Bye bye. You be the Patreon man. Hey, you. The Patreon (laughs) man. Between the markdown suits and the table linens, where they, should I say, should I say that's a quote? Because people will be like, what the fuck? Um, (laughs) (laughs) make it sound like I was just kind of (laughs) editorializing there. Yeah.